joy to add my welcome to you all. <clears throat> and I want to invite you to turn, if you would, in, in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the book of Ecclesiastes and continue our summer sermon series entitled Under the Sun. The author's focus in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which we come to today, is it's the theme of time. He understands that in order to experience God and to relate to God rightly under the sun, um, we need divine help in order to relate rightly toward the time dominance of life under the sun. Here's an astute observation from uh, someone who has become a helpful guide to us, Zach Eswine, in his book Recovering Eden. He says, time with God in Eden, before the fall, that is, gave space for peaceful human deciding. Time was nothing but good. Time was like a friend who allows us to spend a weekend of retreat in his home. And within this provision, we could recover and live out our purpose. Time was a living room for company, a hallway for movement, a bedroom for lovemaking and rest, a table for food, a yard for work and play, and a path for reflection. Time was beautiful, a friend to humanity as both it and they co-inhabited the God-given world. But now, after Eden, after the fall, time hollers at us with stress. More often than not, time haunts us, pressures us, makes us feel our shortcomings and reveals the misuse or boredom of life. Time still gives room for human decision making, but the times in which we choose are no longer pure and the decisions we make are done as in rooms infested with creeping bugs in the rotted Would. The author of Ecclesiastes captures this constant presence of time and everything we encounter under the sun. And he starts off these first eight verses of chapter 3 using the word time 29 times. And he drops it twice more for good measure in verses 11 and 17. So he's leaving no doubt that in in the words of, of another astute observer of life under the sun, time is lungs. Without it, nothing under the sun can breathe. Time forms the environment in which we live. Time is like a parent and we are its kids. It is always in our business. It's like a foreman and we are its employees. It has a say in our work and how we go about it. In other words, we cannot think about, we cannot think about or talk about or engage in life under the sun without reference to time. And so we come to God's word and to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 with humble hearts praying, speak Lord, your your children, your people, your servants are listening what, to what you have to say to us about time. So please follow along now. I'm going to read, I'm going to read the first 
14 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. And yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. This is the word that God has spoken. Let's pray. One of the things that you have done is that you have communicated yourself to us through the text of Scripture. You've done it. And you communicate yourself to us now through it so that we might revere you, that we might approach you humbly, that we might receive of your love thankfully, that we might take hold of You confidently, that we might walk with You, O God, obediently, that we might be shaped according to Your purpose for our joy, for Your glory. Thank You, God, for this book. Thank You for this Word. Thank You for ruling and reigning. Thank You for ministering to us even now. Lord, we understand that we do not live just on the bread that this world has to offer. We live. We thrive. We, our souls, come alive because of 
food this world knows not of, every word that proceeds from your mouth. So work now among us, Holy Spirit. Reveal the glories of our Father in heaven and through the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I believe that the aim and purpose of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is to engender in us and among us deep and enduring joy as we live our lives as God's people in this world on this side of eternity under the sun. I get that from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 12 where the, the preacher poet, as he refers to himself as the preacher, he says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them. Them, referring to humankind, us, the audience that he was immediately communicating to, but for people of all ages, there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. That's encouraging, right? There's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as we live life under the sun. And the preacher knows that we need this kind of encouragement. We need to be encouraged to be joyful and to do good because life under the sun, it is just hardwired with tension. According to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12, all the way through chapter 2, verse 26, which we looked at last week, all the things of this world, that, that actually, practically, tangibly deliver us joy. Love it when that happens. <laughs> All the things of this world that actually deliver to us joy and pleasure, namely things like learning and laughter and entertainment and the fruit of the vine, and art and architecture and nature and all the things that money can buy and sexual intimacy and music and affirmation and leveraging actual influence and hard work and getting things done. All of these things, though they all can and they do produce real joys, the joys that they produce are like water. Just all runs right through your fingers and disappears down the drain. And then there's this inevitable, inescapable reality of death. It's, it is an obstacle to joy and it is coming to all of us. Ecclesiastes 2 verses 15 and 16. I perceive that this same event happens to all of them how the wise dies just like the fool. So... So the pleasures of this world, as we said last week, they're like smoke. You try to, try to hold on to that, put it in your pocket, save it for later, it's gone. Life under the sun since Eden and on this side of eternity is all vanity and striving after wind. And then, and then we all die. So where is the joy? If life under the sun is just out of our hands, if life under the sun is impossible for us to master for our own gain, then how does one experience the kind of joy 
the exuberant, serious, hard-driving joy the preacher is describing in chapter 3, verse 12, as there is nothing better. Well, my, my purpose this morning is to show you that the ground and unshakable foundation for this kind of joy and goodness and for all the enduring pleasure we may experience as long as we have breath under the sun is located in the truth and in the functional reality of the doctrine that we know as God's providence. Jerry Bridges offers this useful but concise definition of the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence is His constant care for and His absolute rule over all His creation for His own glory and the good of His people. And and if you are attentive, you notice that there's two objectives fulfilled by God's providence, namely the glory of God and the good of His people. And, And these two objectives are never antithetical. They're never in opposition to one another. God never uses His glory at the expense of the good of His people, nor does God ever seek our good at the expense of His own glory. God has designed His eternal purpose in such a way and for the end that His glory and our good are inextricably bound together. And this is meant for our comfort. And our encouragement. If we're, gonna, if we're ever going to learn to trust God in every season, the delightful ones as well as the, and especially the disquieting ones, we, we must believe that just as certainly as God, there is certainly as God will allow nothing to subvert His glory, so He will allow nothing to spoil the good He is working out in us and for us. And so, have you ever felt, uh, as the preacher felt, that it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with? (laughs) Chapter 1, verse 13. If you've ever felt the grief and lament as the preacher felt that all his days were full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Chapter 2, verse 23. And if you have ever been tempted to say, as the preacher himself said, so I hated life because what is done under the sun is so grievous. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and in particularly its its communication of the doctrine of the providence of God, it is intended by God to be a healing balm and a means of grace to lift your flagging soul and a rope to hold you fast. And, And so here's the main point, I believe, of this chapter. God's providence is the ground of our joy in every season. And in every circumstance under the sun. Now, Ecclesiastes 3 divides into three sections. In verses 1 through 8, 
the doctrine of God's providence is asserted. And then in verses 9 to 15, the doctrine of God's providence is applied. And then it's applied in that it shows us how the truth of God's providence functions and produces hope and joy. And then in verses 16 to 22, God's providence is vindicated. And that's, that's crucial because when the seasons of our life under the sun is, include unexpected, unwanted situations that appear unjust, irrational, downright dreadful, that's when we feel confused or frustrated. And it's at those times we're most tempted to try to force others or force God to act within the, the kind of the seasonal behaviors that we would prefer rather than to learn how to change and adjust humbly and teachably and slowly and wisely to the grace of God's wisdom and providence. And it's not long before we begin to doubt God's care and concern and even His control over our lives. And, 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 and we're tempted at those times to say or to think things like the preacher says, I hated all my toil. Ever been tempted to say things like that? Adversity is typically hard to endure and even harder to understand, but, but on account of the preacher's wisdom and personal experience, he's anticipating that objection to God's providence, and he offers an eternal perspective intended to strengthen our confidence and joy. So those are the three sections. We're going to look at them one by one. Here we go. First with God's providence asserted. Now, if Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 12 through chapter 2, verse 26, is an explanation of how all the, the pursuits and all the pleasures to which we give ourselves to in our lives also slip through our fingers with very little lasting satisfaction, then Ecclesiastes chapter 3 begins to explain why, listen carefully, it explains why our inability to master and control life and all its various parts is actually the very thing that can give us hope. Our inability to control it, right there, located in that, is, is the very hope that engenders joy. And so if our inability to master and control life is the beginning of our hope and joy amid life's I love that phrase, uncomfortably unfixed. Remember that? It's because the God in whom we live and move and have our being is the Master and Lord over every season and all time and each and every matter under heaven. Good times, hard times, in-between times, as well as the entire range of, of lifestyle choices and decisions that often require a wisdom that seems to elude us. There is a God-appointed time for every one of these things. Now, where we can get off on the wrong foot is to interpret the poem of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 as some kind of a directive. Here's what you're supposed to do. However, the content of this poem, it's a famous poem, you hear it at different times, funerals, weddings, whatnot. The content of this poem is to be understood as descriptive rather than prescriptive. For the preacher, 
this, this poem is intended as an observation. It's not an agenda. We're not being told, for instance, that, okay, now is the time to plant. Three months from now or so, uh, it's going to be time to get out there and start plucking. What the preacher is saying is that God is sovereign over the seasons. God is over the epochs. God is over the times. And therefore, the way to read it rightly is... For everything, there is a God-appointed season. There is a God-appointed time for every matter under heaven. God set the day of your birth. God set the day of your death. You don't plant in winter. You don't harvest in spring. That's the way God made and ordered the world. As Jesus Himself said in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by His own authority. I was watching a, a documentary. Old, old people watch documentaries. I was watching this documentary recently on the Vietnam War and I was I'm thinking, you know, if, if I had been born just one year earlier, I'd have been drafted into the army and deployed over there to kill people. And the fact that it was not my time to kill, my time to die in a war, can only be attributed well, it's certainly not due to Richard Nixon or my parents. It's God. It was God, the providence of God. My time, in relation to all those things, was appointed by Him. You see, in this way, the poem puts flesh on the skeleton of life under the sovereign rule and reign of God. And since the poetry, since poetry in general is the language of the heart, we can be sure that God and the preacher mean for us to, to feel the power and the pleasure of God's providence. And when the poem is done, the preacher says, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its God-appointed time. And whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. And Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He, God, has made crooked? Perhaps you have found yourself in a spot, the preacher would say a lot, that is crooked. It's not right. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> if God made it crooked, there's nothing you can do about it. God's providence is unmovable. It's fixed and it's real. And its aim is God's glory. And therefore, its end is our good and our joy. Now, loved ones, 
Keep in mind, the preacher is training us. He's mentoring us into a way of being human in relation to Him. With a capacity to honestly recognize what's there and to yield to yield to the one who's in control and who supplies us with the grace through this God-breathed word so that we might seek Him and rely upon Him for all that we need in all the times and all the seasons, whatever they may be, that He has appointed for us in which we should live, no matter what those times and seasons may include or how long those seasons may last. God's providence asserted. Now, second, God's providence applied. Wouldn't you agree that, that, that so many of our frustrations in life rise from our blindness, kind of we're oblivious to a change of a season, a God-appointed season? There's change going on. We didn't, you know, we didn't pick up on that real quick, and so we're just kind of moving on as though the same season's going on, and and then the wheels fall off. So many of our frustrations in life rise from our blindness to the unique pains or joys that accompany a change of season, as well as our struggle to adjust our expectations accordingly. I've noticed that our family happens to be in a season change. Uh, we're now in the season of grandparenting, as well as um, a significant chapter turn with another son getting married. And, and I'm finding myself unusually just sort of, uh, out, of out of sync out of sorts. Um, and it's not a bad thing. I'm not sitting there grinding my teeth and frustrating. i just like, there's so much stuff going on in my life. i just overwhelmed. A season has changed, is changing. We're in the middle of it. And it, and it requires adjustment. And I'm still catching up. Say it another way. So much of our fear or exasperation or multi-varied hyperventilation is due to insisting that all things be on our timetable as well as our functional belief in God's rule and reign over time. Unbelief. If, if God is over time, then what am I so jacked up about? But it's precisely here where it's so crucial that we learn to apply God's providence. Look again at verses 10 to 14. The preacher says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. In its God-appointed time. If it's God's appointed time, it is, will be, eventually, beautiful. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. 
Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so that, to the end that, people fear before Him. They, they are humble before Him. They yield to Him. And then verse 22. And so I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him? Who? Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Notice how attentive the preacher is to what God is doing. Now, there, there's, a, there's an obvious strength. I mean, we, we love can-do kind of people, right? We love the can-do attitude. Um, nevertheless, it, it's frequent that, you know, with this sort of, a, if it's going to happen, I'm going to make it happen, that mode, it, it, it has a tendency to leave us functionally blind to the fact that, you know, God is already up to something. God's been doing something before we even woke up to it. And the preacher says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. So I saw that there is nothing better that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now, see, this, this is the mark of a skilled detective of divinity. He's got his eyes open. He's awake. He's alert. He's paying attention to what God's doing. And one's lot, one's lot in this case has to do with one's portion. I mean, it's who we are and what we have. Or more specifically, it's who God has made us to be and what God has entrusted us to steward. So my lot includes my personality and my strengths, my gifts. It also includes my weaknesses and my liabilities and my limitations my lot includes my marriage and my sons, my extended family, my relationships with friends, as well as all of those whom God has seen fit at this time, appointed time to bring into my relational sphere the neighbors that I have right now, the, the neighborhood I live in, the city I'm in, the job I have. It includes my health. It includes my assets. My lot includes everything in the God-appointed storyline of my life. Zach Eswine says, Our lot is like a ship. Meaning, I guess, that the, the, seasons, the seasons of life are like the wind and the waves. Seasons sometimes put wind in our, the sails of our lot and off we go. You know, providence is sweet and, uh, you know, the wind's at our back. Winds are fair. Everything feels like it's in alignment. And then there are other seasons when it feels like the wind's just blowing in our face. The winds of God's providence. Work doesn't feel like a good fit. My values and the values of the company are out of sync. 
car dies and the fridge goes bad and my tooth breaks and a girl breaks my son's heart and the neighbors are partying all night. So what's up then? God is the director of every time and season. Ecclesiastes 3.1 God is the giver of life and everything in it. Ecclesiastes 3.10 God makes everything beautiful in its time. Chapter 3, verse 11. God's actions are inscrutable. Chapter 3, verse 14. God's actions are forever. Chapter 3, verse 14. God's providence extends to all that is good and delightful as well as all that is hard and disquieting. I mean, that's the sum of the poem in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 again. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. God made both days. Zach Eswine observes, with God, everything fits. Nothing is wasted or lost. God does not abandon for one second of a life under the sun. No disquiet is God forsaken. No true delight is God neglected. And he points us to uh, Joseph. The life of Joseph. Joseph pointed us to this beauty. These purpose-drenched seconds when he looked at all the pain, the reoccurring tears, and the long years of wreckage that his own brothers had perpetrated. And he interpreted it all through the lens of God's providence by saying, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. This is, this is something that we would be wise to consider praying into our worldview. It would serve us when an unexpected gust of God's providence knocks over our nicely ordered garden of good intentions. It's a fruitful exercise, I believe, to take the time and the thought to recount on a timeline of our lives each, each and every high and low, each in influential relationship, each joy and heartache, each achievement and failure, each landmark moment, each turning point, each season of fruitfulness and each season of failure and loss, each celebration, each grief, each lesson learned, each opportunity wasted, it's a fruitful thing to pay attention to the providence of God in and over every inch of our life. For in doing so, by God's grace, we recognize that, according to Psalm 139, verse 16, in your book, in God's book, were written, every one of them, 
the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. In every time and season, God is doing something planned in eternity past that will endure forever for His glory and for our good. And in its appointed time, the fog's going to clear and we will behold the beauty in it. But for some, that beauty will not be seen for all the beauty that it is until the last day. And that, that brings us to God's providence vindicated. So for all the peace and joy and solace the doctrine of God's providence engenders, some still find it to have a hard edge. Douglas Wilson says, more than one person has cut himself on it, speaking of this doctrine. But the denial of the doctrine of God's providence and sovereignty over all things, including calamity and pain, does not remove the light and darkness, the peace or evil. It just removes the possibility of finding any solace. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 to 22, the preacher presents us with this very observable, I mean, we, we, we all know it, very observable problem in life. Look at verses 16 and 17. He sums it up. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there, was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So there is a God-appointed time for this tension, this admixture of righteousness and wickedness. There is a time, a God-appointed time. We're living in this God-appointed time between the fall and the time when Jesus comes back. And, and it is a powerful, challenging place to live. And as we kind of, you know, like maybe you could say bury your face in, in our finite storylines, we're often left grasping after several different threads and can't seem to weave them into this coherent whole. Our stories have broken characters and jarring interruptions and unexpected joys and relationships caught up in unresolved tensions and difficulties. Our stories have unexplained contradictions and lots of unanswered questions. And in God's kindness and mercy, as of yet, unfinished stories, unfinished chapters, that is. But our stories are not the story. The story reveals that there will be a time of judgment when all will be made well and right. 
and the longing for justice, this desire that all things be made right, it is just bound in us. It is a God-given hardwiring into our created being. You deny bereaved parents justice for their child's abuser? There are no words for the passion and the fury that can consume their hearts and overwhelm their thoughts and their lives and their home. You trample on somebody's rights and dignity and demean their self-worth and they get off scot-free for having done so. Oh, we give birth to the kind of indignation that can just smolder and burn for years with soul-rotting effect. The world that God made is not meant to be like this. Will there ever be a time for justice? Will things ever be made right? Will God's providence in it and over it ever be resolved and vindicated? And the answer is yes. God will retrieve every single injustice, every single time, every single activity, every single deed that has ever broken His holy law and tarnished His beautiful world and diminished His glory and damaged His image bearers, every one of those times are under God and will be answerable to God. One commentator says, Every tear and every sighing sorrow for my wrongs, whether those things I have done, and we've done our share, or had done to me, each one will be sought out by the God who is perfect in justice, truth, mercy, and love. And again, knowing that God is outside of time and over time, ruling and reigning, seeing it all, knowing that He will, in the end, bring judgment both to the righteous and the wicked. It stops me. It should stop you from needing to be in control of everything that happens to me and you. The message of Ecclesiastes is not that life, yeah, man, you know, it's just it's full of good times, bad times. Just let, just roll with the punches. Just go with it. Whatever God throws at you, that's not it. Rather, the message is that life is full of good times and bad times that we cannot control. But the unfolding storyline of our lives is part of a larger, eternal storyline, an epic poem that God has written and advanced. A life story that by living it out in humble reliance and trust is shaping us and forming us and preparing us for beautiful works God has planned for us to live out for His glory and joy under the sun as well as enduring satisfaction for eternity that comes when we know and accept that we are time-bound creatures and God is our eternal Creator. 
satisfaction lodges in our hearts when we accept the boundaries of our creaturely existence and we accept the seasons of our lives as coming from His good and wise and sovereign hands. Trusting that, trusting that, relying on that, accepting that. That's a gift from God. That's a gift from God. Left to our own perspective, we will have none of that. Look at, look at how Ecclesiastes 3 ends. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who can do that? Who can bring him to a place of contentment with God's rule and reign? Who can make us see? Who can open our eyes to the glory of what's to come? Who can transform us and soften our hearts and cause us to turn and trust? Who can forgive us and redeem our past and fill us with the faith for a bright tomorrow? The New Testament tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And in Him... Christ Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's who can make us see. Let's pray. Lord, there are some things that we see and there are some things that are still as though we're looking through a fogged up mirror. There are are times when it's clear and there are times when the things that we actually know and once were clear feel as though we're looking through a fogged up mirror. We're living in the appointed time of flesh and blood. We're living in the time of in-between, the already, but the not yet. You've already come, Lord Jesus. You've already finished the work of conquering sin and death. And You have already made all things right, but not yet. In its fullness. And until that day. We need more of you. We need help. Day in and day out. 
We need more faith. We need more fullness of Your Spirit. We need more of Your work done in us. We need each other. The means of grace that the body of Christ is. We need Your Word. We need You to restrain sin within us and about us. We need to see and be attentive to where and how You are at work, O God. Help us to see. And grant to us the gift of turning and trusting that we might be healed and restored and forgiven and renewed day by day. So that we are confident. We can live in the joy and the confidence and the comfort of knowing that you're in control and you're good and everything is good and everything is going to be good because of who you are and all you have done in Jesus' name. Amen.